The scripture reading this morning will be taken from John 4, verses 23 and 24. And if you're looking in your pew Bible, that's on page 941. John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Good morning. It is good to be here this morning. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. What an amazing week. You've already heard the great news mentioned of the baptisms, the new births physically, uh, the, the wedding, the anniversary. God is so good to us. Also, we want to think about investing and placing seeds into the future. Keep in mind that Stateside Mission Trip, the classes will begin soon to help you be prepared and trained and informed. And then uh, the mission trip will be in the beginning of July, about uh, July 7th, I believe it is. Listen, this is a wonderful, wonderful way to make a difference in your life, in the life of this congregation, in the congregation where we're going to, but also in the life of an individual. Uh, this morning, we have Mary Griffith with us. Mary, would you mind standing? Uh, Okay, we met her at her door in Chattanooga in 2005, and she was baptized into Christ, and she since then has been on fire for God. And uh, thank you so much for being with us uh, this morning. And that's what happened in 2005, and what we're praying about, and what we're longing to see are more souls like Mary in 2012. They're out there. There are people right now searching for God. They need someone to knock on their door and be that teacher that can help them find God. Uh, please consider giving a weekend or the week to such a great work. There's a place for you, whether you're a teacher or not a teacher. There's a place for you on this great work. Family was riding back home from church. Mom, dad, little seven-year-old girl, and... Mom chimes in about how none of the songs she liked that morning. And Dad chimed in and said, and the preacher, wow, what a long, dull sermon. And then the little girl, in her wisdom, chimed in and said, yeah, but you got to admit, it was a pretty good show for only a dollar. Now, when you think of worship, what do you think worship is? We've looked this past week. We looked at the fact that worship was seeing the Lord on a throne high and lifted up. And everybody that is involved in worship to the Almighty God, they see His majesty. They cry out like the seraphims that the whole earth, heaven and earth, is full of His glory. All of the attention, all of the adoration, everything is being poured out to the one who's on the throne, high and lifted up. And what that does, true worship causes us to see our own imperfections because we are focused on such a high standard of holiness. And that's what moves you and I to say, I want forgiveness of my sins. I want to be more like Him. Be holy for He is holy. And then to receive that grace leaves us with such great appreciation that we say, Lord, here I am, send me. 
But then that brings us to an important question. Does it really matter how we worship? You know, if there is a question that I'm asked, maybe not that same exact wording, but if I'm involved in conversations any more often than this one, I don't know what it would be. It'll usually go like this. Well, you know, I I moved into this town and I went to this church. And, you know, they worship different than the way we did. But I really can't see a lot of differences. And so I, I tell you, I feel good about it. And so I think that's where I'm going to worship. What do you think? How many times have, have we heard versions of stories like that? Oh, I looked around for so many churches, and I tell you, it took me a while to find one that I just really loved. What's your criteria for searching for a place to worship God? We live in a time where there are a lot of different approaches to worship, or maybe there's not. Really, there's approach of true worship. Or it's not true worship. And that's really what it boils down to. I think about in a book that Bob Russell wrote several years ago. And he tells of a man that he said one of his great disappointments in his childhood was that a circus came into town, he thought. They erected a big tent and he couldn't wait that night to go see the circus. And when he got there, it was only a church having a revival and he was such a disappointed child. But then, he says, my greatest disappointment as an adult was when I went to church expecting a great revival, and when I got there, it was just a circus. What is worship? But especially this morning as we begin a series of not only now that we've laid the backdrop of what worship is, it's not entertainment. Entertainment places the focus on you. That's self-will. That's selfish. Worship is placing the emphasis on God. Worship is when we come as a participant, worshiper, to pour out our adoration to the one on the throne high and lifted up. As one man said, God is on a throne, not on a stage. It's not about how this makes you feel as to decide whether or not it's right or wrong. It's about whether or not we have approached the one with adoration in our heart to pour it out to him as he has asked in spirit and in truth. So with that in mind, let's begin thinking for a few sermons now on how to worship. Does it matter how we worship? As long as you go somewhere where you leave feeling good, you leave feeling like you connected with God, you leave feeling like you connected with God's people, or at least the people in that room, is, is that good? How is it that God wants us to worship? If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. We do worship a God who's august and powerful and majestic. We worship and serve a God who deserves and is desirous of our worship to Him. We worship and serve a God. It is out of our gratitude and love for Him that we worship Him. But yet, what He asks of us that we're going to see here in Hebrews 12 is He asks for reverence. He doesn't ask for a carnival atmosphere. He doesn't ask for a circus. He doesn't ask for a football stadium-like feel. If He did, we ought to give it. But instead, 
Let's think for just a few moments. What is it that God asks and expects in approach to Him? Now, in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, we we don't have a slide for the first couple of verses I'm going to mention. But if I just want you to see if you do have your Bible open. This paragraph begins at verse 25. And, And this part of the paragraph is where he's introducing the fact that under the Old Covenant which was a law given to God, from God to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people, even if you disobeyed that law under the old covenant, you were severely punished. And he says, now think how much more a law that is given from heaven, which is Jesus Christ giving the law. If he punished those under the first covenant without exception, how much greater is it going to be, or how much more certain is it going to be for those that disobeyed the new covenant? And so then he says, there's going to be a time of shaking. And this is, this is fulfilling prophecy and a continual speaking of a prophecy that is out of the old covenant that there's going to be a kingdom established which cannot be shaken. And ultimately that greatest shaking is going to be on the day of judgment when there's going to be a sifting, if you will, and those that are righteous are going to remain with God and those that are not are going to be cast away. Now isn't it interesting that this is the preface? Do you hear me, brethren? God, what do you want me to learn about how I approach you? And he says, first I want you to think about what the end is going to be when you stand before me on the day of judgment. Are you going to be with some of those that are shaken and they are blown away? Are you going to be the ones that have made a decision to stand with me? And now let's look at verse 28 and 29. And here's what he says here. Therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom, which by the way, you can interchange that word there with the church. Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 18 and 19. You remember the Lord was going to establish his church upon this rock. I'll build my church. Now listen to this. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In other words, he's saying in Matthew 16, 18, my kingdom, the church will not be shaken. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have Grace. That's the only way we can become a part of that kingdom that will not be shaken. We don't deserve it. It's only by God's grace. But now, keep in mind, you remember Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. When we are filled up with the grace of God, we have so much to give to others. We become loving and gracious people to others. When we are filled up with the grace of God, you can't give something you do not have. When you are filled up with the grace of God, you have love and adoration to give back to God. And that's worship. And so here he's talking about a life of spiritual service and a life of spiritual worship to God. Now notice this again. Let us have grace. It's the only way we're in the kingdom. It's why we have something to give back by which we may serve. Some of your translations may literally have the word worship there. There There's several words in the Greek that are translated worship. This is one of those words that's often translated worship that we may worship. God. Now here is the theme of this morning, and it will be the underlying or the thread that runs all the way through this series of lessons. Notice this, that we may serve God acceptably. Do you accept the worship? That's how many do today. Well, I tell you what, I visited that church and it just didn't connect with me. I'm going to go find another one. They go to another one. Oh, I love that church. It's acceptable to me. Listen, I'm not saying this never happens, and I'm not saying it's our place to go out and judge and condemn others. I'm just using this as an illustration. When's the last time you've been standing by the water cooler and somebody talked about where they visited and they decided they were going to stay there because they worshiped in spirit and in truth? 
You don't hear that language in our religious community anymore. You know why? We are so absorbed with entertainment in our world today that we forget the fact that we are not here to be entertained. This is one place throughout the whole week where it is not about you. It is not about me. It is about the one on the throne high and lifted up. And if we are growing and spiritually maturing, we're going to realize that more of our week and more of our days ought to be all about God also. And so here we have the one that we're invited into his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. By the grace of God we are. And he says, now I want you to approach me. But he says, I want you to approach me in a way that I accept. Note that. Not the way you accept, the way I accept. Well, what's that going to be? With reverence and godly fear. I wish I had a slide for this. We're going to come back and talk about this reverence and godly fear in just a moment. But while we're thinking about this godly acceptance of us in worship, I want to remind you of another passage that you probably know pretty well. Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 and verse 2. If you want to turn there or if you want to listen, I want you to think about the word acceptance here. And whose acceptance is it? Is it your acceptance or is it God's acceptance? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy, see it's always by the grace of God, by the mercy of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You have something that you are to offer God every day of your life and it's your self-will to be sacrificed to say, your will be done. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, what? Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He doesn't stop there. Now he says, when you approach life and when you approach worship, and by the way, that last phrase that he says, which is your reasonable service, some of your translations would say, which is your spiritual worship. And so now we got this idea. Are we going to worship like the world worships? That's right, the world worships. Are we going to worship like the world worships? Are we going to have a life of service and worship that is different from the world? So he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to the world. Don't let the world shape the way you worship. That's a huge point. Today, worship mirrors culture in most settings. And worship is supposed to be a result of truth being practiced. Worship is not to be a mirror of culture. It is supposed to be truth being practiced. That's worth tweeting. Now, whenever you look at him saying, do not be conformed by this world, be ye transformed... The world's not going to shape the way I worship Him. Now, I know in most churches in our communities, it is. But He says, if we're, if we're, we're looking for acceptable worship to God, do not be shaped by the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what? That good and acceptable will of God. Do you see that? Both verses, back to back. What is it? God says, I have a way that I want you to approach me. And by the way, there is a way I accept. There's a way implied here I don't accept. You decide to do it like the world, I won't accept it. And now what do we have here in Hebrews 12? Hebrews 12 begins by saying, I need to remind you about that great day of judgment. There are going to be many people on that day that have not approached me in reverence and godly fear. And he says, that's not acceptable to me. God is not looking for excitement without reverence. Now, also note this. God is not looking for apathy either. If your idea 
of worship in spirit and in truth are the things we don't have, you're missing most of it. Right now, if you were sitting as you're sitting, thinking as you've been thinking, singing as you've been singing, praying as you've been praying, etc., and the Lord was on a throne right in front of you, would He say that you're so apathetic that worship hasn't even taken place? Or would He say that you have approached Him in a way that is acceptable to Him? Reverence and godly fear... This reverence is interesting, and if time permits tonight, we'll come back around and see the second time that it's used in the Bible, and it's telling women how they need to approach a life of reverence in their life, in the way that they dress and conduct themselves that will prove that they are submissive to God and submissive to the head in their home. Note, we cannot live a wicked life and worship in truth. It's impossible. The two have to go hand in hand. It, if not, it's hypocrisy. It's not true worshiper. And so what we see in 29, here in Hebrews 12 and 29, look, for our God is a consuming fire. What a way to close a passage to say, I want to talk with you about how you are going to approach me, God is saying. And he says, as you approach me, keep in mind, I have a day of reckoning. I have a day where I take care of all those that have chosen to not approach me in an acceptable way. I love what F.F. Bruce says about this verse. He says, It is an aspect of the character of God revealed in the Bible that plays little part in much present day thinking of Him. Now, you can either obviously agree or disagree with him, but Bruce says most people today in our religious communities do not get the teachings that's in these verses. But if we are to be completely honest to God, we dare not ignore it. Reverence and awe before His holiness are not incorruptible or incompatible with grateful love and trust in the response to His mercy. It really is not only possible, it's beautiful to have a great gratitude and love for God accompanied with a great awe and godly fear for God. Realizing that there is a standard of righteousness that God has given and that God upholds. And that a loving God can truly expect us to keep that standard in mind in our life and also love us at the same time. Now we don't have time to develop this, but if this is foreign to you and you are a parent, I beg you, you've got to look into this point. So many times our parents suffer as parents because they do not understand that there is a standard of righteousness that's more important than what your child wants to do. There's a standard more important than my child being happy at the moment. Happiness versus holiness. And so what happens is oftentimes we don't even get it in day-to-day life. We don't have a standard in our life. And so then we come to try to understand God, which if we understand God and His standard that He places and that He is a loving God and He is a good God, He is a righteous God, but He also has this high standard. I have to see God in that way as I approach Him in worship or I miss the importance of all that He is in a full scope. I only see God halfway. It's like when people talk about, boy, do you remember the good old days? Yeah, they're always remembering just the good things. They forget the days when there was no air condition 
And they forget the days when there was one phone and it was a party line with eight others. And they forget the little television that's the size of a handkerchief and you got three stations on it. Yeah, remember the good old days? That's what people do with God. Oh, I'm going to approach it. I'm going to worship the God that, that it's Jesus holding the children. And it's, it's God saying that I, I am your shepherd. Or it's Jesus saying I am the good shepherd. And then... They just completely block out the fact where God says, by the way, I'm a consuming fire. There's going to be a day when things are going to be shaken. And all that that is eternal will remain. And all that is temporary will be in destruction. So where does this lead us? Let's go and finish this lesson in Genesis, the fourth chapter. Back up to Genesis, the fourth chapter, if you will. In the beginning... We've got Genesis 1, the creation, God being the creator of all. Genesis 2, we have the story told of creation as it relates to mankind being created. Genesis 3, we have the introduction of Satan. You see that? We have three chapters of introduction. Genesis 1, let's introduce and let's meet God. Genesis 2, let's meet ourselves as a human race. Man, woman, and the institution of marriage. Genesis 3, let's be introduced to our enemy. We have an enemy, and we didn't do so well that day with our enemy and mankind's sin and Adam and Eve left their garden, left their home. And now we ask the question, now that the introductions are taken care of, what is going to be the next story in the Bible? Isn't it interesting that the next story in the Bible is where two brothers each had the opportunity to bring something to offer it to God. It was a type of worship. And so they had something that they were to bring to God. And let's see how this story unfolds. Let's begin reading Genesis 4 and verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. In other words, of the increase. He brought the best of the increase. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. So think about if we, if we substitute the word worship there. He re- respected the worshiper because he respected also the offering of the worshiper. But now, now notice as we read on about Cain in verse 5. He did not respect Cain and his offering. What was Cain's reaction? Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said in verse 6 to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be... What's the word there? You see how the beginning of the Bible, God says, I want to show you that I don't accept just anything in worship. So now he's pleading with Cain. You've brought what I have not asked. The reason we know that is in Hebrews, the the 11th chapter, we know in that great hall of faith, we know that Abel's offering was by faith. Where does faith come from? Romans 10 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We know that God had told them what he expected them to bring. And we know that Abel had followed what God said. And we know that Cain did not follow what God said. And so now we see that he looked at the one that had done as he had asked. And you know what he says? In other words, he says, I accept you and I accept your offering. But he looks at Cain and he says, I can't accept you. And I can't accept your offering. And Cain grows angry. Why? Please get this. It's all about whether or not you're humble and you're willing to allow God's will to be done and not your own will. That's what it boils down to. 
And so he wasn't ready to sacrifice his own will and worship as God would ask him to worship. And so notice as we read verse 7 again, God says to him, if you do well, see there's an evaluation there, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. A while back, I mentioned to you uh, several years ago how every time that I read this passage, I think of the fact of not only learning lessons from Abel and learning lessons from Cain, but we also learn valuable lessons about God. You know what we learn in this passage? We learn that God is not a beggar. You've all been out on streets and you've seen someone lying at a, a storefront early in the morning and, and they're just asking and they have the cup out. And you know what you can count on? They'll say thank you to anything you put in it. If you have a few quarters put in it, they say thank you. If you have a dollar bill, they say thank you. If you have a five, they say thank you. Now this is not just an illustration about money as in contribution. This is an illustration about your life and your worship to God. You know what? They're... It seems to be, by people's comments and by conduct around us in the religious community, it seems to be that ma the majority of the people today, they have a mindset that God is a beggar, and anything that I offer toward Him in worship, God's going to say, thank you. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you. And listen, those people either haven't read the Bible or they haven't read it honestly. From the beginning of the Bible... All the way through the Bible, the emphasis is on, have you brought to God what is acceptable to God? Listen, God has a standard of righteousness that He cannot sacrifice. And so He's not going to look at you and say, oh, they're such a sweet person. I'm going to go ahead and accept that worship even though that worship defiles me. He can't. He is a just God. With God, Romans the second chapter and verse 11, there is no partiality. Listen, if it is not true worship, God can not accept it. He is not a beggar. And so when we ask the question, does it matter how we worship God? Listen, there ought to be a loud cry from within us, absolutely right it matters. The text that was read this morning in John, the fourth chapter, 23 and 24, you notice there that the plea is for true worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, when you think about what is truth, John, the 17th chapter in verse 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God has given us a standard of righteousness. Now with that standard of righteousness, we see a great, great responsibility. You know, here in America back in the early, about 1901, the National Institution of Standards and Technology was established. And the reason it was established was because all across America, there were at least eight standards of a gallon of milk or gasoline or whatever was being sold. In Brooklyn alone, there were four standards of the measurement of a foot. Over 50% of the merchants across America had scales and measurements that were dishonest. 
And so the federal government realized they had to do something. So they created this institution that would create a standard of everything. When you go and you get an x-ray dosage, they have, uh, they, they have overseen that that standard is proper. And so you can go to L.A., Denver, New York, or Mount Juliet, and you can buy a gallon of milk, and it's always the same number of ounces. You can go anywhere and buy a foot of rope, and it's always the same number of inches. Who gives us the standard that God says, this is what I will accept. Now, this is important for the rest of this series. In John 17 and 17, he says, my word is truth. That is the standard that we worship God by. It's not, how do I feel? It's not, how does it make me feel? It is the standard for truth. If God said every Sunday to worship me, I want you to clean out manure out of a horse barn, we ought to be saying, where's the pitchfork, God? I love you and I want to obey you. What is your standard? What is your standard of worship? God says, I will accept individuals that approach me with reverence and godly fear when they worship in spirit and in truth. From beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's about whether or not God accepts it. Let me quickly read to you what I've learned today. I've learned that God isn't a beggar, but He is a consuming fire, is what He says. I've learned that I can't seek entertainment, or I can seek entertainment or worship, And the difference in the two is my humility. I also learned I can't worship wrong and be accepted as a true worshiper. If we can help you in any way this morning, we want to help you be accepted by God. It's not a standard we create, it's a righteousness that God's created. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ from mission your sins, you're ready to come back to Him, what is it that we can do to help you take steps to be accepted by God? Let us know if there's things we can do as we stand and as we sing. Come forward.